you are in the heavens, and you do all that you please. And we thank you this morning that you were pleased to send your son Christ to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised for us, and that we've been raised from the dead, made new in him this morning. Pray that as we hear from your word, we would learn more of what it means that we are called to go out for the sake of your name and to send men and women out in a manner worthy of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. All right, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 3 John. If you open to the back of your Bible to the book of Revelation and go two books left, you'll find our whole text for this morning. We've been working through the New Testament in 90 days over the last almost 90 days. This Wednesday we'll end our listening series. Uh, Next Sunday we'll end our series of sermons through whole books of the Bible with the book of Revelation. Look forward to that. And then uh, Ryan will be back in September. A little later in September he'll start a series through the Psalms, which I'm really, really looking forward to. This morning's text will be the whole book of 3 John, just 15 verses long, shorter than some chapters in our Bible. Let's read together. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that, it, that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone. And from the truth itself, we also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Well, when we think about the scriptures that tell us who we are as the people of God and and what it is that we are to do, there are a number that come to mind. I think of Matthew 18, verse 28, verses 18 and following, where we, Jesus gives us our great commission, we call it. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Those are good words. They're clear words. We think of Acts 1.8. Jesus says, before his ascension to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Well, these are very important moments 
in Scripture. And we should be particularly familiar with these verses because of how concisely and in a focused way they express our mission from the lips of Jesus himself. He's a good communicator, and he made sure he was very clear, and he was. Well, wouldn't it be neat to read the correspondence between two men on the ground in the first century working this out? To be, on the fly, to be a fly on the wall, say, between, in a conversation between the Apostle John and a church leader during those days. Well, tucked away in the back of our Bibles is this book, Third John, a letter from the Apostle John to a church leader, Gaius. This morning, we're going to play the fly and listen in, at least to one side of a conversation about the glory and mess of working out Jesus' great commission in the first century. Well, if Matthew 28 and Acts 1-8 give us our marching orders as soldiers of Christ, then 3 John is a letter from the trenches of the first century church planting movement. It's correspondence from the battlefield from one soldier to another. It was written during the last quarter of the first century when the apostles were fading from the scene and John, who was perhaps Jesus' closest disciple, was uh, old in age. He was maybe the last of the apostles. He calls himself the elder, the, uh, indicating his authority, elder, but the, maybe that he's the last one alive. He's just the elder. The book is so much like other books that John has written, we're certain it's from him. We have in John's third letter the most personal of all his writings. His gospel was for a general audience. The book of Revelation is to seven churches. The first book of John is for general circulation, general reading. The second book of John was to a church. But this third book, this third letter of John, is to a close friend. He writes, quote, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. And here we have the embodiment of John's vision for the Christian life that he's written about in his other letters. Those who know the Father through Jesus Christ are a people of love and a people of truth, a people who love in truth. And you can hear it in the way he's writing to his friend here. The way he writes his letters signals a closest relationship, a close relationship not only to Gaius, but also to those in Gaius' church, or at very least affection for them, each of them. Look at verses 13 through 15. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends every one of them. So John didn't just run with the big boys, corresponding with just the church leaders, the guys with names. Now he cares for every one of them, he says. And in a day when much of our communication happens remotely, text message, email, Facebook, even pen and ink, John says, is not ultimately satisfying. We need to be face to face, to see one another, to know one another by name, This would be a great sermon for the Sunday when we have sign-ups for a church directory. Faces and names are important. Well, the good shepherd calls his sheep by name, and John knows these folks by name. He says, greet them, every one of them. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, there are no little people. John's letter follows a typical pattern. There's a standard greeting, a body, and then a closing greeting. He gets all this done in 15 verses. But while it's almost the shortest letter in the Bible, it's as rich as it is brief. We know that John had much to write. He says at the end, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon. 
But he did write. We can assume that he wasn't just writing to keep the lines of communication open or to touch base or to see what's going on, to see what's new. He wrote because there were some things that were timely. John can't wait to be with Gaius face to face, but there are some things he needs to say that really can't wait for that meeting to come. So what couldn't wait? What couldn't wait for a personal visit? We'll find out in this letter. And the rest of our sermon will be unpacking that question. Well, first, John writes to Gaius to rejoice over him in truth. Did you pick up that word? All throughout the letter, but especially the first four verses. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. As indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Well, here we get to know Gaius. And John prays for him. First thing John prays for Gaius is for his well-being and his health. Not until very recently would we get nervous about that. Or want to make sure we make clear what that means and doesn't mean. Certainly in the Bible, there's no expectation that every Christian ought to have perfect health and abundant wealth. Uh, That's very recent, that idea is. We have every reason to be cautious about those interpretations of prosperity gospel preachers. But John's prayer isn't much unlike our prayers for one another. We care about one another's well-being and health, don't we? And God cares about every part of us. We know that he delights to hear our prayers. And here we have reason to believe that he delights to hear prayers about our health. John knew Jesus very well. John's perfectly comfortable praying for Gaius' health, that it may go well with him. It can't be the sum and substance of our prayers, but our prayers personally with family and as a church should reflect a range of concerns and certainly prioritized eternal things are most important. We'll see that in this letter. But if you've ever wondered if God should care about your physical health, he made your body, and he does, and you can pray to him and for others, and we should. Notice that he prayed that Gaius would be in good health, but he did not pray for his soul. I thought this was so interesting. I pray that it may go well with you, and you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul, and then moving on. Now, we should always pray for one another's souls. But it's interesting. For, uh, as well as it goes with Gaius's soul, how do we know? How does he know? Because he's walking in truth. He's gotten a good report. His overwhelming reason to think that Gaius is strong and faithful and walking with the Lord, persevering in truth. He's gotten a good report, and he knows his friend. To walk in truth is to know true prosperity in this life and true health in our souls. But for all this talk of truth, he mentions it four or five times at the front. This is about as doctrinal as the, the letter gets. There's no explicit mention of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the cross, or the gospel. So what kind of truth makes it go well with Gaius's soul? It's the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how do we know? By reading everything else John wrote. Look at how he ends 1 John 5.20. Listen how explicit he is about this truth. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. 
Make no mistake, Gaius knows John and he knows what John is talking about. This is not just vacuous truth. It's truth about Christ, specific truth. Third John, John says this truth about Jesus Christ redeems us. He says it goes well with your soul. Well, how else can it go well with our soul? It unites us. He loves him in truth. And it moves us. It transforms us, Gaius is walking in truth. In this letter, the substance of the truth is assumed. He's writing a brief letter to a close friend. He would have been more explicit and thorough in a public letter or even a longer letter. But this is, en- this is enough. It's like a direct tweet. It's very short. It's probably one papyrus. I don't know how many characters could fit on that, but not many. We have this letter. It's almost exactly the same length as Second John. Maybe that's what would fit on a papyrus with his specific handwriting. I don't know. Well, he writes mostly address a few practical matters and he gets to them. But he doesn't just get to them without talking about Gaius' soul and truth. John couldn't wait to rejoice over Gaius and the truth, and so he didn't. And he does so before moving on to practical matters. So are you walking in the truth? How would this letter come to you? John knew Gaius was walking in truth because word had gotten around. Oh, it does that, doesn't it? There are people in this church I rave about because of their love for truth and how it overflows in love that is so obviously demonstrated in so many ways. And do you have any children in truth to rejoice over? John did. But we're all disciple makers. We're just doing what John did. And if your heart's full of love and you're walking in the truth, both of those things spread themselves around. Do you have any children in truth? Pursue them. I like this prayer from the Valley of Vision. May I never think I prosper unless my soul prospers, or that I am rich unless rich toward thee, or that I am wise unless wise unto salvation. May I seek first thy kingdom and its righteousness. May I value things in relation to eternity. May I be poor, afflicted, despised, and have thy blessing, rather than be successful in enterprise, or have more than my heart can wish, or be admired by fellow men, if thereby these things make me forget thee. May I regard the world as dreams, lies, vanities, vexation of spirit, and desire to depart from it. And may I seek my happiness in thy favor, image, presence, and service. That is beautiful. It is most important that it goes well with our soul. John couldn't wait to rejoice over Gaius in the truth. It was going well with his soul, and so he didn't. So first, John writes to rejoice over Gaius in the truth. The second reason he writes is to promote the spread of the name. And this, is, this section will probably take up as much as the other three points combined. It's a big section, and it's the heart of the burden of John's letter here. In verses 5 through 8, we read this, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Of course, these first two purposes are related. You can't love one without loving the other, the truth and the name. They feed off each other. 
Well, in that first point, we met Gaius and got to know him a bit. And here we meet some new characters, the brothers. This is what happens in personal letters. You get personal names. In this case, he refers to a group of people, the brothers. The brothers were traveling missionaries. Much like Paul would travel around and preach the gospel and plant churches, those that followed him would do the same. They would travel through areas and stay with Christians on their way. They've gone out for the sake of the name. Their ministry was among Gentiles, people who didn't know or believe the truth about Christ. They're being witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. John writes, it's a faithful thing that you do in all your efforts for these brothers. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. We ought to support people like these. Three different ways of commending the same thing and something that Gaius is doing already. Remember he said, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Well, they just had all manner of great things to say about Gaius and his hospitality. So he's giving Gaius a two thumbs up. Great job, my friend. And keep it up. Keep it up. What does it mean to send them out in a manner worthy of God? He says for them to do that. That's the manner in which he's to send these folks out and host them. Our common experience gives us some illustrations. We think if you've got a client, the most important client you've got sends you a referral, you take care of that person like you were taking care of that most important client. If the president were visiting our city, our city would receive him and send him off in a manner worthy of that office. When sending, our sending, is to be as if God has sent them, they should feel the love and sending of God in Gaius' hospitality and support. That's what they need, and that's what their work is worthy of. And it wasn't enough for John simply to tell Gaius to keep it up. He reminds him of why this is so important, and he gives him reasons. He gives him three reasons. And reasons are important in the Christian life. We get them all over the Bible. It's possible to do many good things to go out as a missionary or to send missionaries out in support of them and not glorify God, even though God will use it. So reasons are important, and John gives Gaius reasons. Why should we support people like these? What's the motivation that's to drive him? Why should we send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God? Well, first, we support people like these because they go out for the sake of the name, he says in verse 7. It's not unusual when we talk about the work of missions to be busy talking about the work. There's a lot to talk about. There are places to talk about. And we should talk about it. Rio Rancho, North Africa, Guatemala, the reservations, our own city. There are people going. We talk about those people. We pray for those people by name. Cody, Aaron, their families. Carlos, his family, we pray for these people. But this activity, these logistics, if you will, of the ultimate thing are not the ultimate thing. They're the logistics, the pieces that lead there. At the end of the day, our Christian lives and all missionary surfaces about the magnification of God's worth revealed in the gospel, his name, the glory of his name, whether we eat or drink or go out or send out, We do all things for the glory of God, for the sake of his name. We see it all throughout scripture. Through the story of scripture, God is constantly telling us why he's doing what he's doing. We think of his words through Moses to Pharaoh, but before this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Or his words about Christ, David's greater son, that he said to David, 
He shall build a house for my name and I will establish his throne forever. Or his words to encourage Israel in their rebellion. He said, for my name's sake, I will defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I will restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, he says again, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Christ's coming and our going out is about the sake of the name and the glory of God. It's clear enough. Whatever God does, he does for his own name. I love our church's mission statement. Spreading God's glory broader and deeper. That's the heart of it, isn't it? And if I would have had you all say it out loud with, on cue, you would have been able to do it. It's pithy enough. I like it. It sticks. I hear it in prayers around here. Little tags at the end of a prayer. For God's glory to go broader and deeper in the hearts of this people or that people. In our own hearts. In our own world. But John here is writing about the name of Jesus Christ, it's most likely. God's passion for his own name is focused on the exaltation of the name of his son. Paul says that God has highly exalted Jesus Christ and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's every knee out there. We think of Paul's conversion in Acts 19, where Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then Paul in Romans 1.5 says this about his mission. He's received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. We have life in Jesus' name, and there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. Well, no wonder it shows up here as John is talking about world uh, missions and missionaries going out for the sake of the name. It's why they go out. It's the ultimate reason they go out. It's why we send. John Piper has written a helpful book on missions. And he starts out this way. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Jesus Christ came and lived and died and was raised so that we might, through believing in him, be worshipers. Of God. I like the lyrics of the song we sang this morning at the start of the service. Our hearts are longing for the glory of the Lord to be made known in all the earth. Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Yours is the greatest name of all. We want to see the nations bow. We want to hear the rising sound of the worship that you deserve. We want this passion to abound, a burden for your great renown. Yours is the greatest name of all. So how are we thinking and talking about missions and praying about missions? We should be saying names of people and places and including those in our prayers. But are we talking about the great name of God? That is after all why we're here anyways. And that is after all why he's called us to go anyways. Let's be busy talking about, thinking about and praying about And for the thing God cares most about, and that is the exaltation of his own name. And as that song we sang affirms, and Psalm 67 affirms, these are not in competition with our great joy. It's the most loving thing we can do for our neighbors and the nations is preach the gospel. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. It's the same thing. Well, God's great name is the fuel for missions. 
both for those who go and send. And we will send our missionaries in a manner worthy of God when we share with our missionaries in a passion for God's name. It's the first reason is uh, because they go out for the sake of the name. The second reason we support people like these is because they accept nothing from the Gentiles. Verse 7, they accept nothing from the Gentiles. To send someone on their way would, to be, pro- would be to provide rest, fill their stomachs, send them with what they needed for their work monetarily and materially. These are things they will not get from the people to whom they're going. And they shouldn't get from those people. By Gentiles, John is referring to those who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. My wife and I had the privilege of traveling to Ethiopia to pick up our two children, Carson and Madeline, then Hanak and Yabsura. Um, and as I was walking on a street around a corner, there's a man having his shoes shined. That is, by the way, what orphans do when they are not adopted. They end up in many uh, tragic situations. Uh, one of them is just shining shoes on street corners and finding places to sleep. So here's a man getting his shoe shined. And he sees me. I'm Caucasian. We did stick out. I'm pale over here. Uh, <laughs> And not just in New Mexico. Hey, you, where are you from? I'm from America. Why are you here, he asks. Are you a missionary? I wasn't a missionary, but I was happy to talk. He spoke enough English, at least. And they enjoy practicing their English. So they're always trying to engage you if they speak any, especially the children. But this man stood up from his seat where he was uh, having his shoes shine, came over to me, and proceeded to give me example after example of how he worked for a missionary for six years and went angered by the man. He took our businesses from us. He's a missionary or is he a business? Which is he? I see he cheats the people. He cheats the people. The missionary cheats the people. Now, it's difficult to know what on earth was going on there. It may just be a very hard heart. But that man was specifically angry because he perceived missionaries coming to take from the people. It angered me to hear his perception, not because I felt his feelings were unfounded, but rather that my Savior's name had been tarnished either by bad missionaries with false motives, finding a great business after all and getting busy with it, or by ignorant missionaries who failed to see how they were being perceived. Now, there are many reasons why a missionary may set up a business, strategic and God-glorifying important reasons. But missionaries are not to do so to receive their livelihood from those to whom they're going. The apostle says that a worker is worth his wages, and that is true. But not in this specific case. They receive nothing from the Gentiles. It's a different thing altogether in this case. We will send missionaries out in a manner worthy of God. When we send them out with a monetary and material support, they need to minister among those who do not know Christ to whom they've been called. So we support people like these because they go out for the sake of the name. We support them because they accept nothing from those to whom they're going. And, verse 8, because when we do, we are fellow workers for the truth. We ought to support people like these that we may become fellow workers for the truth. They cannot go without senders. So senders are not insignificant. This is important to note. We'll be sending some folks out from here. And it's not that they're the real spiritual ones and the half-hearted ones are staying back. Some are to go. Some are to send. We need one another. It's a partnership. Both 2nd and 3rd John, by the way, are concerned with this question of hospitality. Early Christians knew they were to host Christians, to be hospitable, to be hospitable. Well, in 2nd John, there's the issue of a man traveling around uh, preaching false doctrine. 
Well, do I host him? He needs a place to stay. No, he says. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. You're partnering with him. Well, in this case, those who preach the gospel, when we partner with them, we may be fellow workers for the truth. Fellow workers, like business partners who share in the work and the reward. We do different things, but we do this together. By supporting missionaries, we should be clear. And this church, these church plants locally, the church plants globally, and any other thing else that you support in terms of gospel spreading globally. Clear as to what we're not doing. We are not giving from our resources, otherwise devoted to our purposes, in order to support someone else's need. It's not charity. We're not supporting because it makes us feel good about ourselves or because in some way the giving makes us greater people. Rather, in giving, we participate in something greater than ourselves. We are not supporting someone else's purpose. We're supporting our shared mission to advance the single purpose of God to which we are all called as goers and as senders. And we need to talk and think and pray the right way about what we're doing when we give. Last in our giving, our hearts latch on to it as a reason to exalt ourselves or in our going. Well, before we went to Ethiopia to pick up our children, uh, some friends from college we'd lost touch with for eight, eight or nine years um, contacted us by Facebook. They'd gotten wind of this. We were going to Ethiopia to bring two children into our home. And they were going to Ethiopia to make Ethiopia their home. Both for the sake of the gospel and the name. They were going there as missionaries in two months. They'd been preparing for about nine or ten years. Theological studies, linguistic studies. A great investment of time and resources and their own intellect. These are brilliant, brilliant people. They can move in on a tribe and learn a language, map it out, and then write a New Testament for them in a decade. Oh my gosh, they could have done anything. They're going out for the sake of the name. I was jealous. I wanted to wind the clock back and be a Bible translator. Great folks. Well, they were traveling through our city in two weeks, and we had a chance to put them up and spend some time with them and wet our hearts. They're dear to us. And I asked Travis if he would share with me a few examples of how he felt when he felt sent out in a manner worthy of God. The first one he shared was when they were leaving their home church and People had prayed for them, were praying for them at the end of the service, laying their hands on them. But Bob, who had become a father to them and was perhaps the most respected man in the church, got down on his knees. And he says, he'll never forget Bob's prayer. Through his own tears, he quoted Romans 10, 15, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Man, I tell you, he writes, Andrea and I simultaneously lost it. I can't even describe the feeling, but it was... Somewhat of a combination of incredible love and support from the body of Christ, the privilege of getting to go and serve God, and the seriousness of the whole thing. We were sent out in a manner worthy of God. We see how personal that is. See how personal that is. But he calls them strangers. You see, Gaius was hosting strangers, people he didn't know otherwise. He knew they were Christians and what they were about, sent from John. And he has another story of a stranger who did the same in a way. We have only one regular financial supporter whom we had not had a personal relationship with prior to the beginning of our supported raising, Mr. and Mrs. Lankmaker. Not only are they unique in being the only ones to commit to supporting this strange new couple that came to their church, but they are also our most faithful writers of letters. In the four months that we have been here in Ethiopia, this was written a few years ago, Mr. Lankmaker uh, has written one letter a month. He tells us about his life, his plans for the coming month, his sadness in turning another year older. 
But there are three things that are common to all his letters. First of all, he apologizes for his bad penmanship, poor spelling in English grammar. Second, he always thanks us for our faithful service to the Lord and love for Jesus. And third, he reminds us that they pray for us daily and expresses gratitude that they get to be a part of this ministry with us through giving prayer in his letters. It sounds so simple on the surface, but that consistent and genuine expression of excitement at what God is doing is not only a huge encouragement, but a needed reminder to us that we are here as God's ambassadors. Through his letters, he is sending us out in a manner worthy of God. And these stories picture for us in a really tangible way, really tangible way, what rejoiced John's heart in Gaius's efforts, faithful efforts. We get a clear sense here of mutual privilege and sacrifice and joy in the work for the sake of the name. Well, John encourages him in more of the same. He tells him to do so because they go out for the sake of the name. They accept nothing from the Gentiles. And in supporting them, he is with them a fellow worker in the truth. Well, if Gaius is doing this, then why does John have to encourage him in this way? I kind of read this letter and think, okay, you just said I was being faithful, but then you kind of gave me a whole bunch of reasons why I should keep doing it, which makes me think you really don't think I'm being faithful. Now, guys knew what was going on here, and we see it in the next few verses. There's a man well, kicking people out of the church for supporting missionaries. Sound ridiculous? Let's figure out how that works. Third reason he writes is to defend the mission against human pride. So he writes to rejoice over Gaius in truth. He, rejoice, rejoice, he writes to, su- uh, to, support the sp- to promote the spread of the name. And he writes to defend the mission against human pride. 9 through 10. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Meet Diotrephes, another character in this letter. Now we're going to meet, he's a shady guy. Uh, And it's an encouragement just to know that in the early church there were problems too. And look at all of us here. God faithful. We have our own problems. Well, John wrote to promote the spread of the name. Here John moves to address a different but related concern. There's a man who wanted to be first in Gaius' church. He says he likes to be first, to put himself first. Interesting. John was in the way of Diotrephes' name. You know the reason he wasn't, he was putting out missionaries is because they were sent from John. John's the apostle, the one that was close to Jesus. Diotrephes can't stand him. He's talking wicked nonsense against him. First, second, he doesn't welcome the brothers that John is sending out. Third, he's trying to get others to stop doing that. So Gaius might be discouraged. And fourth, he puts people out of the church if they do. So this is a hot button in the church. And if what Gaius is doing sounds insane, it is perfectly insane. It's called self-love, and this is what it looks like. It's unlikely that Diotrephes was alone in his opinions. If you talk to him, it'd probably sound spiritual, have godly reasons. He might have been persuasive and winsome. It sounds like he may have been a leader in the church. Talked about God a lot. I don't know. Manipulator. But of course, wanting to be first is the primary problem out there and in here as well. Human pride. We do see pride in the story of how one angel fell from heaven, the devil now, 
Isaiah 14, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. We see it in Adam, tempted to eat from the tree. The serpent went to Eve. You will not surely die. Of course, God had said she would. They would. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Familiar? And they ate. They wanted to be like the Most High. We see in all of Adam's sons, certainly Cain. We think of Cain who killed his brother. Not to, because he wanted God's favor more, and he didn't get it, because he wanted to be first, whatever that took and whatever that meant. John even writes about Cain in second letter. We should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brother's. But if anyone has uh, the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Good question. Good question for Diotrephes, who can't even support missionaries. Before God confused their language at the Tower of Babel, they said in Genesis 11, 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower that is uh, with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. And listen to how Jesus described the Pharisees in his own day. When you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. They have their reward. Well, the contrast between Gaius and Diotrephes is a clash of names. Not being first, though, is the point of the Christian life. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death he was obedient to God. Point of death on a cross and now he's highly exalted and in his name every knee shall bow. No one here should be trying to get people to bow down to their name, exalting their own greatness. And this clash of names, this conflict of names is in all of us. We all have a rotting old little Adam in our hearts. Ephesians 4, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We're to put off the old self, the old man as he refers to it in other places. You know you like to be first, to put yourself first. If you're bothered when someone else's ideas is honored instead of your own, Maybe not even because of the idea, just that yours wasn't taken. When you find yourself constantly, as you're talking to somebody, you have a thought, and you've got to say it now, and you cut them off. I find myself doing that. When you refuse to confess a sin and ask forgiveness, because that would be to put yourself low. When you sign up for things, people will like you. You'll be known as the one who's always around. We'll always have problems in the church, and the churches we plant will have problems, particularly in their early years, by the way. Leaders are being established, structures are being established, and there's just a lot of room to push and shove. And we might not kick those who support missionaries out of the church, uh, support missionaries out of our church, but when we bite and scratch to be first, however that may look, we're stealing glory from God's name for the sake of our own name. Well, it's a good thing that a man should aspire to leadership, by the way. Diotrephes wanted to be first. 
Aspiring to leadership is not quite that. We see there's a number of qualifications for leadership or eldership in a church. One of them, in summary, being that they be above reproach, patient, self-controlled, sober-minded. One sign of mature Christian leadership is a willingness to submit to authority. Diotrephes does not have it. It's interesting to note, though, what John does not say. He doesn't threaten him. There are problems in the other churches with apostasy and false belief, false preaching against Christ, and John is very clear there as to what to be done. John seems to me would have said something. It doesn't seem that he's an apostate or denying Christ. He's a Christian with a huge head, if he's a Christian. He needs to be confronted. John's not chomping in the bit to get after him, even though he's been speaking wicked nonsense about him. Well, I'd be chomping at the bit. That would have been a rough letter. Gaius, get rid of that guy. Human pride and wanting to be first is the biggest threat to the mission because it can't stand other names and God's name is the biggest. So the third reason John writes to Gaius is to defend the mission against human pride. And the fourth reason he writes is to commend a good example. Read in verses 11 through 12. Beloved, do not imitate evil but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and know that our testimony is true. You know that our testimony is true. Well, I take it that Diotrephes' actions and presence and self-exalted given leadership at this church what could have been a discouragement to Gaius' generosity. John understands the human dynamic there. That's why he's writing to encourage his friend to protect him against this. So he squashes Diotrephes, but then he encourages him to follow the example of this man named Demetrius. And so we meet Demetrius. He may have been John's messenger, sending him along. He wants him to meet this guy, get to know Demetrius. He's got a great reputation. Everyone says so. I say so, and you know me. It may have been a man at Gaius' church that John knew well. Stick with him. It's hard to know, but we get the point. So Demetrius was a good example. When we think about being above reproach, getting this kind of a report from the Apostle John, we recognize it's not automatic. These things don't come automatic. It's not that he was perfect. That's impossible. And it's not that no one really knew him. You don't get that kind of a recommendation when no one really knows you. I was known well. But he knew, how, he knew himself well, and he knew his God well. No doubt he was regular in the confession of sin and quick to confess sin. Quick to forgive. A gracious man. A godly man. But how does imitation really work? We're told to imitate him. Does that mean follow him around, do what he does? Is it rote and kind of robotic? Ah, certainly not. I think we, we understand it, but... There's some neat texts here to kind of get at what's happening under the surface, how heart transformation happens in a relationship. Well, you're changed by the people we're around, right? It's because it's from their vision of life. That's how. Look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does, does evil has not seen God. Watch that C word, sight language. Look at 1 John 3, 2 through 3. John writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and we will be as not, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, Christ, we shall be like him, 
because we will see him as he is. The Bible says that we become what we behold. And here we see that seeing God is both a means to becoming a Christian and the way that we're transformed. To imitate the good example of Demetrius, to get to know and to hang out with Demetrius, is to absorb his vision of God and to see God the way he sees God. So we can say that those who do good have seen God, and that's why they do good. It's their secret. Know a godly person? The secret is they see God right and themselves rightly for that reason. Get their vision of God. Let's put our finger on human pride and imitate good examples like Demetrius for the sake of the name. So that fourth reason he wrote is to commend a good example. Well, John wrote to rejoice over Gaius in truth, to promote the spread of the name, to defend the mission against human pride, and to promote a good example. You remember how his letter began. He said that he rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to Gaius' truth. Word gets around about those who love, who love in truth, and who send missionaries out in a manner worthy of God. This week I read a letter. This is what I read, an article about a church in Albuquerque. Leaders at Desert Springs Church are mentoring two couples to become global staff. Desert Springs has pre-qualified them to be church planters among an unreached people group. So the church is investing their theological, in their theological education and ministry experience here in America before they send them overseas. Great Commission Director Clint explains, we want them adept at reaching people and shepherding them in the context of their own culture before we send them out to do this in another culture. As the couples prepare, the church is actively working to raise funds to send them from within their own body. Desert Springs is focusing on their city, Rio Rancho, North American Indian populations in New Mexico and Arizona, the Navajo and Pueblo peoples, and the least reached people group in Guatemala. And they are planning work in North Africa. Well, beloved, I have no greater joy than to read here that you are walking in truth. It is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for those you are sending to North Africa and those you are sending to Rio Rancho. You do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they go out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from those who don't know Christ. We ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. It's been a pleasure to be with you this morning face to face to rejoice with you in truth and in the great name of Jesus Christ. I look forward to seeing you again in person next week. Peace be with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great and highly exalted name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for his blood that has purchased us and that you were pleased to send him to die for us so that we might be redeemed to you. Our hearts are longing for your glory to be made known in all the earth. Let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Yours, Father, is the greatest name of all. May we be a people who believe that and feel that and go out and send out for the sake of the name. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.